You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Public health officials have expressed disquiet about the rise in the number of COVID infections. The latest briefing from NEFET heard that over the past week there had been 67 newly notified deaths. There's also continuing concern about the number of unvaccinated pregnant women being hospitalised with COVID. Since June, 20 pregnant women or new mothers have needed to be treated in intensive care. Dr Peter McKenna, who's the former master of the Rotunda Hospital, is now the HSE's clinical Director of Women's and Infants Health and he joins us now from our Athlone studio. Good morning. Good morning. Talk to us about what you're seeing around the country and about why you're concerned. Um, The concern is now that the number of pregnant women or recently delivered women, uh, the number of those in intensive care are increasing. Uh, Last year, for example, um, in intensive care admissions, pregnant women would have accounted for 1% of those admissions. For the first half of this year, that doubled to 2%, but more recently, that figure has climbed to 7% of ICU patients have been pregnant or recently delivered. And these uh, these women have needed uh, very significant uh, intensive care. Uh, some have required ventilation for uh, weeks on end and have been critically unwell. And in all of those cases, were the women unvaccinated or or are we talking about a mixture of vaccinated and unvaccinated women? Uh, Since September and through to now in October, there have been 15 admissions of pregnant women to intensive care in Ireland. Of those, none of them have been fully vaccinated and two, I believe, were partially vaccinated. Okay, so that is pretty stark. Are there any reliable figures, do you know, for the percentage of pregnant women who have chosen not to get vaccinated? Um, Yes, we can give you pretty up-to-date figures. Uh, Last week, in all of the 19 units, there was a survey done on the inpatients. These are women who had just had their babies and who were waiting to have their babies or were inpatients because of complications. Across the country, approximately 750 women were surveyed. Of those, 58% were fully vaccinated and uh, 74% of their partners were fully vaccinated. Now, the 58% figure of women uh, fully vaccinated may not sound to be terrific when put into the context of 90% plus vaccinated in the entire uh, community. But from our point of view, that is a very gratifying figure because it's come from a very, very low base. And it would suggest to me that the message that vaccination is necessary if you don't want to uh, become unwell is getting through. I think that we may now have reached a tipping point where the message is absolutely clear and unequivocal that all pregnant women, for their sake and for the sake of their baby, should be vaccinated. The advice to pregnant women has changed over the months. So is it understandable if some are confused or concerned about this? You're absolutely correct to mention that. Um, The evidence uh, has changed and consequently so too has the advice. At the start of the year, you probably will remember that uh, we were saying that the trials on the vaccine had excluded pregnant women. Uh, So that was where uh, the caution at that time came from. The next advice was that uh, high-risk pregnant women should get vaccinated. That would be women with medical complications, hypertension, diabetes, that sort of thing. The next iteration of the advice was that women should get vaccinated between 14 and 34 weeks. And more recently, this has changed to all pregnant women should get vaccinated. So there is no doubt that uh, the, the advice has changed along with the evidence. But now the evidence and the advice could not be clearer. If you wish to avoid serious Uh, illness from COVID, you should get vaccinated when you're pregnant. Mm, There is also, as as you're well aware, a situation though where women are told to be careful about what they eat and what they drink when they're pregnant. And and most women are so incredibly careful about what they do. Can you understand why some might be reluctant to take what they see as a risk? 
Um, I can understand that, but the evidence would suggest, and suggests very strongly, uh, that this is an extremely safe vaccine. It has been given to hundreds of thousands of pregnant women throughout the world, and there has been no pattern noted of any adverse outcomes. Uh, similarly, uh, both in Ireland uh, and the rest of the world, it is now being seen that pregnant women are at a particular risk. We have been extremely fortunate in Ireland that no pregnant woman has died of COVID to date. This contrasts with the uh, with England, where uh, in excess of 30 women have died of COVID since the start. Pregnant women have have died of COVID since the start of the pandemic. It, is a ve- it can be a very serious illness if you get it when you're pregnant. Mm. Is there any evidence, though, that pregnant women with COVID are getting sicker than others of the same age and, and with similar health? There is. Um, uh, th- it, it would appear that, uh, particularly in the last three months of pregnancy, uh, when, uh, you know, breathing is naturally uh, that little bit more difficult because of the size of the uterus uh, that uh, your lungs are particularly liable uh, to be injured during pregnancy. At one stage in the United Kingdom recently, uh, 20% of all patients who were on ECMO, that's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Mm, that's the severe pregnant. stuff, the severe ICU. It is, it is the most severe end of treatment and it is an indication that your lungs can simply not work anymore. It's kind of the respiratory equivalent of dialysis, as it were. Um, and it, it's an amazing figure that 20% of all patients in the UK having ECMO uh, were pregnant. Um, you, you know, pregnant women should represent under 1% because they are, generally speaking, young and healthy. And so to arrive at that figure is a very clear indication that if you're pregnant and if you uh, get COVID, you can become extremely unwell. On a related matter, ever since the pandemic began, there's been controversy about the restrictions placed on partner visits to maternity hospitals. Now, change has been promised. When is it being introduced? I think the latest iteration of the guidelines will be introduced um, on the 1st uh, of November. I think that when discussions with the HSE and the patient advocates started, uh, there was a very large gap between what was required by the patient advocates and the uh, uh, the restrictions that were in place. I'm pleased to say that I think that that gap has narrowed uh, very substantially and that I would think that there's good reason uh, for there to be a lot less anxiety uh, in pregnant women and in their partners with the new iteration of the guidelines. And will all the hospitals be cooperating? Because hasn't that been one of the complaints, that different hospitals had different regimes? Um, Currently, we're visiting quite a number of the hospitals to encourage them uh, to uh, comply to the best of their ability. Uh, And when I say the best of the ability, sometimes there are severe infrastructural reasons that give them difficulty. I would I can reassure you that there is uh, an appetite uh, to deal with this issue uh, on behalf of the hospitals. None of these restrictions were introduced on a whim. They were all introduced in order to make the hospitals as safe as possible uh, for patients and for staff. Um, I suppose really that um, uh, with deteriorating uh, rates and increased pressure on the hospital, uh, maybe the path ahead isn't as smooth as we would have hoped for but I don't think well I'm sure that there will never be a return uh, to the original level of uh, restrictions that we would have had earlier. Mm. At the same time though the government is now talking about making vaccine passports compulsory for those visiting hospitals that would presumably mean that if a partner wasn't vaccinated they would have to wait outside. I don't think that that will ever be an issue in maternity care. I think that there is an appreciation that there is a bond between the pregnant woman and her partner that shouldn't be uh, broken uh, except under the most extraordinary of circumstances. Dr Peter McKenna, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland.
And we're returning now to the publication of the proposed carbon budgets from the Climate Change Advisory Council. Strong, rapid and sustainable reductions in emissions are required to meet the climate challenge facing this country, the council says. And I'm joined in studio by Mary Donnelly, the chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council. And a very good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, This is a document, I think it's being called a, a roadmap to fundamental change in how we live and work. Can you tell us how you've uh, how you went about this task of producing these two carbon budgets uh, to set uh, the the way we get to the emissions reductions of 51 percent by 2030 how you went about that and how you arrived at your recommendations so uh, of course our recommendations are based on science so first thing we did was to look at the science where we are and where we need to get to and to look at a set of scenarios modeling exercises as to how to get there it became quite evident that given our starting point and given the absolute essential nature of investment in enabling infrastructure and the need to do that now, that we would not be able to operate a straight linear line from 2021 to 2030, that we would have to balance the two budgets across the decade. And that led us to a deep analysis of the energy sector, the agricultural sector and what's called the LULUCF, which is the land and forestry sector, to see what each of them could do in what kind of timescale and what would be required for them to start delivering on emissions. And the really clear message is that we need to take action now in order to get the benefit of the emission reductions in the second budget period. And that's why we have come out with the budget in the way it is shaped at the moment. Uh, in other words, you've, you've decided to go for a 4.8% cut in emissions in the first carbon budget, the first five years, bringing us to 2026, and then it ups to 8.3% annually after that. That's right. Uh, so the, the urgency really at the moment is to make that investment now because it takes a little bit of lead time. For example, if you look at our electricity system, which of course we're going to have very high ambitions to try and decarbonise our electricity system with renewables, a big player in that will be offshore wind. Uh, In order to get the benefit of the offshore wind, we need the legislation currently going through the Arachthus. We need the grid structure in place. We need to roll out the construction of those. But we won't see the benefit until the second budget. The action takes place now and the benefit will come through in the second budget. What sort of resources are necessary in those first five years then to to follow the plan that you're outlining? Well, there's two parts to resources. The first thing is we already spend money as part of our normal budgeting procedure here in the country. And it's very important that when we do spend the money, we assess whether it's going to be constructive and delivering in emissions reduction. And I have to say Ireland is to the fore in that respect, in that the budget this year was carbon assessed, which mm. is one of the first in, in, in indeed in the OECD to have done that. So that's the first part. But yes, there will be additional funding required. Uh, we've said about 2% of GDP, maybe about 5 billion euros a year in certainly the enabling infrastructure. Things, for example, like charging points rolled out across the country, things like uh, district heating systems in urban spaces. But, you know, you don't set the sectoral ceilings. We are still going to have to wait for Minister Eamon Ryan to come out, having taken your carbon budgets to, to Cabinet and to, to, to the Dáil, for him then to come back and tell us what the ceilings are going to be for all the different sectors. But given the work you've done, you must have a very strong view on this. How do you cut the pie equally so that all the sectors share the pain and the gain? Well, firstly, you're absolutely right. It is the government that decides the sectoral allocations. And that's the process that will now uh, deliver in the course of the next number of weeks and months. Uh, What we have looked at in terms of the modelling exercise is what is the stress possibility in each of the sectors? You know, what is feasible? What is Unfeasible. Well, what is feasible? What is feasible for the agriculture sector? And, you know, we heard earlier uh, from farmers, we heard from hauliers as well. They're very worried. They want to protect their sector naturally and they're prepared to take to the streets and protest to to protect it. So what is feasible for them in your view? So if I take the agricultural sector, firstly, 
analysed the emissions coming from the agricultural sector and there are three kinds of gases. There's carbon dioxide, the same as the rest of us, you know, diesel and petrol in in tractors. So that's one area, clearly, uh, that is the same for everybody in our society. The second area is nitrous oxide, which is a very long-lived warming gas. And that's coming from our fertiliser and our slurry. And this is not a new message. We have an issue there. Our water quality is being impaired by the runoff. And this is something that is already being tackled in the agriculture sector. So it's from a water purity perspective, but also from an emissions perspective, we'll get a double benefit out of taking action in that space. Methane, of course, comes from cattle and from sheep. At the moment, our methane emissions are increasing. They're going in the wrong direction. There are certain technology and feeding practices that can help on that. But we may have to deal with the very difficult issue of linking activity to activity levels in agriculture to methane emissions and addressing that as a serious challenge. You haven't used the phrase cutting the herd, but is that what you mean? Well, I have read quite a bit of the agricultural press and I have been it has been made very clear from that we don't have a national herd we have individually owned I didn't animals. say national herd I said <laughs> cutting the herd at currently at about 6.5 million it, our, our herd is very large it's more than our population of people and it is going to be a challenge it's one that we're going to have to look at very seriously what about transport because arguably transport is also going to be a huge issue yes but let's break transport down into the component parts The first and the most cost effective way of reducing our emissions in transport is reducing demand. And, you know, that's basically walking to the shop rather than driving, uh, cycling, taking public transport. The second area is let's use the new technologies. We have electric vehicles. We have government supports in order to help us to to move into those. Uh, The car manufacturers are really driving that forward. So we have a technological solution there that will become available and become very cost effective as we go forward over the next few years. We do have a challenge for heavy duty transport. Uh, There we have to look at the newer technologies that are coming down the track, some of the new gases that might be used in heavy duty transport. And of course, in the area of aviation, that's a real challenge and we need a lot of innovation, a lot of research to develop sustainable aviation fuels for the aviation sector. And this is a challenge in Ireland, of course, but not just in Ireland. This is a challenge across the world and there is a lot of research going on in order to tackle that particular challenge. Now, when I look at the the targets you've set, the first carbon budget, 4.8% reduction. The second one, 8.3%. There is a a third budget, isn't there? Um, And that's just over 3%. How, How do you explain that? Why the drive to reduce emissions? Why that drive falls off after 2030-2031? Well, firstly, the the third budget, which is the provisional budget for 2031 to 2035, puts us on a trajectory to 2050. So... And a zero... a, a zero a by zero then. game by then. But so effectively, we're reducing 50% in 10 years and then 50% in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So the trajectory is, of course, somewhat different in the second block because the period is longer. But that's not to say it's easier. Uh, in the second block, we will be tackling the really hard to decarbonize areas. Aviation fuel is a, is a good e- example, for example. Heavy duty transport is another one. Some of the very high temperatures that we need, for example, for cement production or for steel or aluminum mm-hmm. production. So these will be the areas that will have to be dealt with in the second. In the, 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 the 20 year period, 2031 20 20 to 2050. Uh, this is... Uh, life changing for all of us this we are told is massive and yet it was published on a bank holiday Monday was that your decision? Uh, The council has been working very hard on this and we are conscious of the urgency of action in this space and in order to come out with our budget as quickly as possible uh, we had the meeting yesterday which you're quite right was a bank holiday and I have to say I apologise to the Secretariat who had to give up the weekend and their family as well Uh, but we were committed to delivering the budget uh, as quickly as possible and that's why we met yesterday Any disappointment that you didn't have a uh, a bells and whistles launch, if you like, to, 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 to drive home the message that you're delivering. This isn't about uh, a bells and whistles thing. This well, is about reality. Well, it is reality. about bringing the public with you. Indeed, it's about bringing the public with, with us and it's about getting the message across. And I hope the message, which is really quite simple, is that uh, 
the two the balance of the budget is such that we need action now we need the investment in enabling infrastructure now and then we will get the benefit of that in the second part uh, of this decade you heard what Prime Minister, we're talking about Australia here, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said uh, that Australia is going to, to adopt the net zero carbon emissions target of 2050. But he said Australia is going to protect its jobs and keep its cost of living down and it's going to protect the Australian way of life. But it's not going to cut down its coal and gas production. Is that feasible? I believe that's a very real challenge and I'm not quite sure how they're going to be able to make those two objectives meet. All right. Well, Mary Donnelly, chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council, thank you very much for coming into us this morning. The Republic of Ireland men's World Cup qualifier match against Portugal next month is a sellout with the Aviva Stadium set to host over 51,000 soccer fans for the first time in two years. But the FAI last night acknowledged that match tickets are circulating online at inflated prices. The maximum original sale price of tickets was €120, but they're reportedly being resold for up to three times that amount. This despite a new law banning ticket touting coming into force during the summer. One of those looking to buy tickets for the match online yesterday was Mick Hogan from Navin. I was queuing on two devices um, before 10 o'clock for the match. I was um, seeking either a family ticket or a parent and child ticket and uh, specifically those uh, because I wanted to bring my 11 year old and the event was uh, sold out in minutes and by 11 o'clock they were up on offer on via Gogo. The cheapest t- price I seen was 238. And that was just for a standard uh, ticket in the Upper West or Upper West stand. It makes me feel angry. I've never been able to bring the kids to an Ireland game um, because of the price of the tickets. To discuss this further, we're joined by Sinn Féin spokesperson on enterprise trade and employment, Louise O'Reilly, and Garrett O'Hearn, the Fine Gael Shannon spokesperson on enterprise and trade. Louise, I'll come to you first. We heard there um, from Mick Hogan the difficulty he had had trying to get tickets at a reasonable price yesterday. What do you make of the situation? Well, I've had fans contacting me as well. I mean, at the end of the day, the legislation was brought in to protect sports fans and music fans, and it's it's obviously not doing its, it, its job. The FAI knew that this uh, event was going to sell out. They knew that this game was going to be popular. They were tweeting in the 24 hours running up to it uh, to fans to tell them to get online to make sure they got their tickets. But the, the, there is a section in the legislation which allows uh, the Tánaiste to actually designate um, an event to be protected. And I'm really, really disappointed that he didn't do that on this occasion. The FAI have obviously uh, got a case to answer as well. And I do I do hope that they will, uh, you know, ensure that this doesn't happen for the future. But really, there is a clause in the legislation that allows the, the government and the Tánaiste specifically to designate uh, an event due for protection under the Act. Mm -hmm. And I think he should have done that in this instance, um, and he didn't. And I think that's very regrettable because at the end of the day, it's the fans that lose out. It's people like we just heard from Mick there and Navin who want to bring their kids to the games. They're the ones that are going to end up getting ripped off. It was very obvious that this was going to happen, that this event was going to be popular um, and that indeed it was going to sell out and fans were going to be left uh, without tickets. But I think the, the purpose of the legislation is to stop fans getting gouged and it hasn't worked in this instance. And I think the government do need to, to take a good, long, hard mm-hmm. look at how they can be proactive on this. All right, Garrett O'Hearn, this new ticket touting law came in just under three months ago. The first time it's needed, it doesn't do what it's designed to. Stopped, stopping tickets being sold for highly inflated amounts. Yeah, well, look, I think myself and Louise would agree in in, our, in sharing our frustration for genuine fans who uh, logged on like like Mick yesterday uh, to try to get tickets. And within 45 minutes, those tickets were sold out. And then they themselves were redirected to other sites to buy tickets for uh, um, an increased an increased amount. Um, the responsibility for this is on is on the FAI to apply to be a designated venue. And the FEI should have done that. The legislation that was brought in in July was to cover uh, uh, genuine fans. That's that's why the Tornished and that's why Fine Gael made that commitment. It was done on the back of, of, of concerts that, that happened three or four years ago. Uh, I think it was U2 were having concerts in Dublin where there was tickets being sold uh, for 20, 30 times the value uh, of the original price of tickets, which was just completely unfair uh, uh, for fans 
and people who wanted to go to the show. But you know, we need to we need to be patient here as well. The industry have had a very difficult uh, eighteen months. They're just getting back on their feet. Uh, full capacity for events has just started since last week. Um, so, you know, I think in fairness to, to the Minister for State, Robert Troy, he has written uh, to, to all organisations, to the FAI, uh, to the IRFU, uh, 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 reminding, them of, reminding them of their responsibility. Uh, he, he has to, done to, so. To register. He has, but Garda Hearn, would it not make more sense to have all events automatically designated and organisers could instead apply for an exemption if, for example, they're running some sort of a charity event trying to raise funds? It would have prevented what we're seeing now, or could have prevented what we're seeing now with the Ireland-Portugal match. Yeah, well, it, it, at the time the legislation was being put forward, it was the Attorney General's advice that it was easier for Cardi to police by doing it this way. The intent uh, was to allow for, uh, was to allow the designation of the Act to cover one-year one, uh, one, one year events also, so events that would take place just once a year, so not just a venue and events, so obvious things like that would be Electric Picnic or Live the Mar- Marquee in Cork. Um, so, you know, venue operators... Uh, themselves would be best placed to know which 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 uh, events and which venues would have to apply uh, for for these events because it's for people of uh, it's for uh, um, over a thousand people who'd come to a venue uh, where it applies for. Mm-hmm. So look, it's very it's very early days. The legislation has just uh, been enacted. Um, in fairness to, to, to the music industry, the entertainment industry, the sports industry, um, they have had an awful lot of challenges over the, over the last 18 months. This legislation was brought forward by government to protect fans, and it will protect fans. Indeed, and hopefully uh, the, the rationale behind the law is clear. Louise O'Reilly, I'll come back to you. It's clear in the legislation the onus is on organisers to apply to have their events designated so tickets can't be sold higher than face value. Should they be taking some of the responsibility here? Absolutely, but it's also clear in the legislation that the minister, uh, in this case, uh, Finnegan's Leo Varadkar, can designate an event or a venue. And uh, from I've I PQ'd this, so I've I've asked questions directly of the department and uh, of Minister Varadkar uh, in relation to this. And it appears that only three applications have been received uh, up until the end of September. Uh, so if the industry is not going to be proactive, well, then the government should be proactive. And indeed, the Tánaiste was explicit in providing that those powers via this legislation to himself. So it's not simply a case that, uh, that, that you know, we can put all of the blame onto the venues and onto the organisers. Clearly, the FAI knew that this was going to happen. They absolutely should have applied to be designated. But there is a section in the legislation that allows for the government to be proactive about this. The fans have been let down not just because uh, the FAI have allowed this to happen, but they've been left down because uh, the government allowed this to happen. I mean, Garrett said there that Fine Gael made a commitment to uh, to protect fans, but fans weren't protected in this regard. They've actually been let down. So I think, you know, the legislation has fallen essentially at the first hurdle. We just need to see the government being proactive about it now to ensure that fans are protected, because at the end of the day, that's what we all want to see, is genuine fans accessing tickets at face value. And I think that's what Mick from Nav once he wants to be able to bring his kids to the match for a reasonable price mm-hmm. that's what genuine fans want um, you know we need to stamp out ticket touting because at the end of the day it's the fans that, that lose out the government have the power to do it they didn't do it in this case let's hope they uh, they learn from this and they uh, ensure that they do actually use the powers that they have given themselves to protect in, genuine fans in the case of the Ireland Portugal match we know initially no designation uh, was sought by the FAI Garrett O'Hearn but in a statement to Morning Ireland last night the FAI said it has now applied to designate the match under the law. The next potential challenge for for her to see if this law is effective will come in just over two weeks. We have the Autumn Internationals with Rugby Ireland play New Zealand in one of those games, very likely to be a sellout. Um, any plans there for getting the IRFU to ask for a designation or has contact been made in that regard? Yeah, yeah so, so look, I think there's a couple of things. The FAI have said that they've designated the ma- they've, they've applied to designate the match uh, or the the event uh, as designated. What I'd like is is that the venue is designated because once the venue is de- designated, then all matches that happen in the venue is designated. Louise would know that we, we had submissions from the FAI when, when this was, was going through pre-legislative scrutiny in the, in the Committee of Enterprise and Trade, and they were hugely supportive of this legislation coming through. But you're right, Ingus, like, uh, today is, is actually a critical day because 
Uh, tomorrow at 12 o'clock, tickets go on sale for the Ireland-New Zealand game that's going to be on the 13th of November. Uh, a, a desig- the designation has to be made before those tickets go on sale by the, by the IRFU to make sure the tickets cannot be sold at over uh, market value. I would encourage and I would expect that the IRFU, along with the FAI, if they were doing anything today, that they would be applying uh, to have the venue designated for the Autumn Internationals. Everyone knows that that match between Ireland and New Zealand is going to be a sellout. All they have to do is apply. Indeed. It doesn't have to be okay. granted. It'll be granted within, in, within a week. They just need to apply today uh, for it to work. And we've seen... OK, sorry, uh, Gareth Hearn, we're just very tight on time and I need to come back in, bring Louise Riley back in very quickly. Um, Louise, you, you've heard what Gareth has been saying there about the, the, the event organisers should be looking to designate this themselves. But do you think, for example, for the New Zealand game in a couple of weeks' time that the government should be stepping in? very briefly well absolutely if uh, the IRFU don't apply then I would like to see the government designate this it's very clear soccer fans have been let down let's see if the government are going to take action now for rugby fans in the next couple of hours okay Louise O'Reilly and Gareth O'Hearn thank you both for your time this morning Next to the big issue dominating European politics at the moment, the clash between the Polish government and EU institutions over the rule of law and the independence of the courts. The latest development is a daily fine of €1 million against Poland from the European Court of Justice. And for more on the background to this story and where it's going, we're joined by the BBC Warsaw correspondent Adam Easton. Good morning to you, Adam Easton. Good morning. Why is the European Court of Justice fining Poland €1 million Euro a day? Well, you summed it up quite nicely there. This, for years now, the Polish government and Brussels have been arguing about the changes to the judiciary that the government has introduced, which uh, Brussels says have opened up Polish courts and judges to political in- influence. And specifically, the European Court of Justice has ordered this fine to be uh, levied because of a uh, creation of a Supreme Court disciplinary chamber, which is being used to uh, uh, discipline judges who have been openly critical of the government's changes to the judiciary. And the court said that um, this chamber is neither independent nor impartial, and if it's not um, closed down, then it would uh, present a serious and irreparable harm, not just to the legal order of the European Union, but also to its core values, including the rule of law, as you mentioned. Yes, and within that, because uh, the uh, the Polish government at the moment doesn't subscribe to a lot of the EU's human rights and equality agenda, uh, particularly in the uh, area of LGBT rights. Uh, and that's part of the reason, isn't it, that this is being taken so seriously by the EU Parliament, by the EU Commission, right across Europe. Yes, that's right. There are certainly concerns about uh, LGBT plus issues, both in the European Parliament and in the Commission. But this particular fine has nothing to do with that. It's to do with the changes to the judiciary, which um, um, the uh, EU institutions feel have politicised the judiciary in, in, in Poland. And it's this is very important because this is not the first time that uh, the European Court of Justice has issued a fine against Poland. It's also done so several weeks ago of half a million euros daily fine for its failure to close a coal mine. And to this to this date, to today, the Polish government says we, we have no intention of paying that fine. So if you've got a situation where the Polish government decides not to pay this new fine about the, uh, the judiciary, it's saying we're ignoring uh, rulings from the EU's top court. And if the Polish government is saying we're ignoring rulings from the European Union's top court, it's saying we're stepping outside of the EU legal order. Now, the EU legal order works on trust. And if uh, a member state decides to step outside of that, then it actually Mm -hmm. collapses. It does serious damage to the EU legal order. Now, of course, a member state can't be kicked out of the European Union. It has to actually ask itself to, to, be, to leave. But this is a serious challenge, as I say, to the EU legal order.
And there's a huge, there's also a huge fund at stake, the 60 billion share due to go to Poland from the EU recovery fund. But the government insisting they want the money, but they're also saying their courts are a domestic matter. Where does this go? I think what will happen, we've we've already seen the Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki talk at the European Parliament debate last week on the rule of law. He did say, well, he was very bullish and said, look, we're a proud country. A country, you cannot tell us what to do in Europe, and we, you know, as the, as you've mentioned several times, the organisation of the judiciary is up to us. It's got nothing to do with you, Brussels. Now, what he said, though, aside from all that bluster, is that yes, we do plan to uh, abolish this disciplinary chamber in its current shape. Now, the thing is, the reason we have this oh, fine right. is that it hasn't done that yet, so. If he does that, this will obviously help in the in the government's cause and, and, and rem- remove this particular immediate challenge. One to watch, Adam Easton, BBC Warsaw correspondent. Thank you. Later this morning, the National Gallery will unveil a Renaissance masterpiece following an 18-month conservation programme. Lavinia Fontana's celebrated painting, The Visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, is the largest surviving painting by one of the most renowned artists of the Renaissance. Joining us now on the line is Sean Rainbird, who's the director of the National Gallery of Ireland. Thanks for taking our call this morning. Tell us about this painting, The Visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon. It's been undergoing a conservation program for the last while. Absolutely. It's a painting we bought um, 150 years ago. So it was a very, very uh, prescient uh, purchase by the governors and guardians and the curators at the time. It's a wonderful, very large, her largest painting, actually, her largest autograph painting, and a, a wonderful panoply, this panorama of noble women on the one side and this sort of mythological meeting of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon on the other. But in fact, of course, they are, uh, it's Alfonso Desta, we've actually identified them now, being uh, uh, greeting Margareta Gonzaga. We used to think it was the Mantuas, but it's actually, it's been identified. So we've actually done this fantastic conservation treatment, and it's part of the Bank of America Conservation Project, a wonderful uh, conservation support they give museums worldwide and it's uh, going to be unveiled today it was last conserved in the 1960s we had visits from our italian colleagues before we actually had a conservation department at the gallery and so after 50 years it really needs uh, another look and it has come out in sparkling glory it is a wonderful wonderful uh, treatment that the uh, our in-house conservators have, have given the work it sounds fantastic tell us a little about lavinia fontana well she's a very fascinating woman woman artist, uh, the very first woman artist who probably had a professional career. So she's uh, in in Bologna um, in the uh, 16th into the 17th century. Our work is dated, actually, now. We can can date it it securely to 1599. Um, She married, she had eight children, um, but her marriage contract said that husband husband was going to look after the kids, where she worked in the studio, built her practice. So she's the very first woman artist, we think, in Western art, who had a, a strong studio practice and was commercially successful painting a lot of the, the noble families in the environs of, of uh, Bologna. So a very, very important figure. And it's, it's wonderful that the gallery has uh, actually two works by her, including this one, which is her most important. Right. So she was quite a, a trailblazer. You're also unveiling a new acquisition this morning, a Madonna and Child by Elisabetta Serrani. Tell us about that. Well, again, Elizabeth Serrani died young. She died at the age of 27 of ill health, so there aren't that many paintings uh, by her. And this one has been firmly attributed and cleaned. And uh, fits again. She's another Bologna painter, actually, and uh, from a bit later, from 1660. And uh, Elizabeth Serrani is, is very important because there are not that many women, as we know, who in the earlier part, sort of pre-1700, pre-1800, had uh, successful careers, and, and, and she was another pioneering woman painter from uh, a very enlightened region of Italy, Bologna. So this Madonna and Child is, we have very few Madonnas and Child images in our collection, which is a great surprise, and it hangs resplendent opposite the wonderful Lavinia Fontana I've been uh, talking about. In fact, the Elizabeth Serrani, it's a smaller painting, is flanked by two other uh, women artists, our second painting by uh, Lavinia, 
uh, a, a nobleman in his armour and his uh, pointed beard on the one side, and a wonderful uh, sophonist Anguissola from about 1560 of uh, Alessandro Farnese on the other. So it's probably the first time in my uh, uh, curatorial, directorial lifetime that I've ever seen a wall of old mistresses, not old masters, if you like, <laughs> to use Lyndon Ochlin's term from the 1980s. But it is, it's, it's a wonderful to see this splendid uh, three-and-a-half-metre-wide um, canvas uh, by Lavinia Fontana, the uh, meeting of uh, Screen of Sheba and Solomon on one side, and then these wonderful paintings opposite. Good news indeed. Sean Rainbird, thank you so much for taking our call this morning. The family of an Irish man who went missing while hiking in the US state of Wyoming has appealed for the public's help in finding him. Kean McLaughlin was last seen on the 8th of June and although the official search operation has been scaled back, family members have continued to walk the hiking trails where he was last seen in the hope of finding answers. Our Washington correspondent Brian O'Donovan is in Wyoming. There's no, there's obviously no trail up in Delta but... I'm very interested in that kind of left side. Where Still searching for answers almost five months after Kean McLaughlin went missing. Now that's quite vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our cleats if there's snow. Kean's mother, Gronya, her brother and her partner study a map before beginning another day of searching through the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. So we've covered this area a lot the last few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we go in, as you suggested... Into the Delta Tunnel. Yeah, we'll go. And 27-year-old Kean McLaughlin from Dublin went missing while hiking in Grand Teton on the 8th of June. Now his family members continue to walk the same trails where he disappeared in the hope of finding clues as to what might have happened. Gronya McLaughlin is Kean's mother. Kean, um, very outgoing guy, loved the outdoors. He was living here for two years. He'd he had dual citizenship and um, so he was working as a s- snowboard instructor in the winter and in the bars in the summer um, an outgoing guy like if if you met Keen, he'd stop and have a chat do you know he was um, loved by all his friends he had a lot of friends in Ireland and in the US as well and um, yeah he was living the life do you know Keen was living the life so um, he was well versed in the mountains he grew up hiking with me and my mum and dad and my brother he used to go to Chamonix and hike in the mountains so well versed with equipment gear so we are assured it was a day hike um, that he was possibly went off trail and that time of year although it's June it's spring here so there was the, the weather was really really warm and the, the the melt off from the snow so all of the waterfalls were gushing there would have been melt underneath ice so it's tricky you know it really is a tricky time of year so my my hope is to um yeah it's not a rescue it's a recovery but i'd like to bring him home you know i know i know he's up there somewhere yeah what was that moment like for you as a mom when you realized it was no longer rescue it was no longer a search it was going to be a recovery um i went through a huge amount of grief at that time um we had got in um on the 17th of june and pretty much two days later you know we were told that it was a recovery and that was really really hard so far i've gone 650 feet that's the voice of kian mclaughlin 25 minutes. It's from a video that his family has shared on social media as part of a major campaign appealing for the public's help. Colm O'Higgins is Kean's uncle. Knowing Kean has been very sociable and chatty, he definitely will have talked to people. And so somebody may remember having seen and spotted Kean on the trail. But lots of people visit here, take photographs. Uh, and so we're, our appeal is anybody who is in the park in June, specifically on June the 8th and June the 9th, have a look at your photographs. There may be somebody in the background. If you can share them with us, send them to bringkeenhome at g- gmail.com or to the National Park tip line. It's still open. Uh, they're still actively looking for evidence. We're going to begin with a news alert just in from the Teton County Corner in Wyoming. Grand Teton National Park hit the headlines last month after the body of Gabby Petito was found here. She had disappeared while on a cross-country trip with her fiancé Brian Laundrie, the discovery bringing an end to a high-profile missing persons case. Now, Kean McLaughlin's family are also looking for closure. When Kean was first reported missing, a massive rescue mission swung into action. Helicopters and dog teams were involved, along with dozens of park rangers and volunteers. But after days of searching, the operation was scaled back. 
Erika Jostad is the chief ranger at Grand Teton National Park. We deployed a number of resources out in the field. We had over 70 searches, searchers each day, and these were people who were traveling around on foot. We had search dogs who are trained to scent with items and locate people out in the field. We used a variety of aircraft resources. So we had people searching from helicopters. We used our civil air patrol doing forward-looking infrared, which picks up heat signatures on the landscape. And that coupled with the investigative work that's happening behind the scenes, again, to try to narrow the places that we're looking. From your perspective, is the search for Kian over? Is it ongoing? Is it in a different phase? The search for Kian won't end from our perspective until we find him. So tactics shift over time and we're coming on towards winter. We expect that snow will fall on the ground, which will make some of the clues we're looking for a little more difficult to find. So we better have a mile in. But until the snow makes it impossible to do so, Kian McLaughlin's mother, Gronya, has vowed to continue her search. I'm thinking of Kian at every moment. I'm trying to connect with him. And my hope is to bring him home, you know, to have some resolution to bring him home. Kian McLaughlin's mother, Gronya, ending that report from our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, in Wyoming. Dublin Fire Brigades say they've been busier in the run-up to Halloween this year than last year, when, of course, pretty much everything had come to a halt. Our reporter, Ashling Maloney, is at Dublin Fire Brigade headquarters in Dublin City Centre. Morning to you, Ashling. Yes, Rachel, I'm here in Dublin Fire Brigade headquarters who have renamed themselves Dublin Fire Boogade in honour of Halloween. It's more of a normal Halloween this year as many of the public health restrictions that were in place at this time last year are of course not in place anymore, meaning many more people are meeting up and celebrating the festival which has its historic origins in Ireland. And it means that ambulances dispatching from this station expect to be busier as more people are out and about and fire officers here are gearing up for a weekend of calls. I'm joined here in the engine room of the fire station by Assistant Chief Fire Officer Greg O'Dwyer. Greg, tell us, what are you experiencing so far this year and what are you expecting for this weekend? Well, we did see a slight increase in activity last weekend with some uh, bonfires and fireworks. Uh, However, really it's all about this weekend and with Halloween uh, falling on a Sunday this week, uh, it's all about the the whole whole weekend. We're going to see a lot of activity over the Friday and the Saturday as well before the Sunday. So we are gearing up for that and, and ready for it. And what advice do you have for people this Halloween, particularly in relation to bonfires? Well, bonfires are legal, first off, foremost, and they are for a reason. They're destructive in nature, they're very dangerous environments. So we'd encourage all, p- all people, especially parents of young children, to uh, try and discourage their children from going to them. If people do go to a bonfire, you know, stay well away, stay well back, uh, especially we worry about kids with, with costumes because they're very flammable and so on. So if you're, if you're close enough to a bonfire to feel hot, you're too close, stand back. Um, again, worry about bonfires that might have uh, dangerous materials on them such as gas cylinders and tires and so on uh, and just I'd like to say as well if people do see any stockpiles of material uh, for bonfires uh, over the next day or so please contact your local authority they're doing a fantastic job in taking these stockpiles away and reducing the danger for the public as well. Thanks very much Greg and of course Halloween can be a particularly anxious time for pets at home due to the sound of fireworks or unexpected trick-or-treaters knocking at the door. To find out more about how to keep our pets safe this weekend I spoke to Emma McLaughlin who is a head vet in Rockhall Vets in Limerick. She told me about Bella, a six-year-old German Shepherd Cross who came to her clinic this week with injuries after she was frightened by fireworks. Yeah poor Bella was brought in again straying and thankfully she was microchipped and Thankfully, as well, the microchip details were up to date, so we were able to call her owners right away. Um, But Bella had actually escaped out a window that was open upstairs in the house. So she had jumped out second story window. And when she landed, she had torn all the skin off the bottom of her feet. So it was really, really painful for her. She could barely walk. Um, She also had some bruising on her mouth from actually trying to chew at window panes to get out of the house. Such, Such was her anxiety. So, you know, she had to be sedated. She had to have a you know, a job done on her feet and, you know, we had to clean them up, bandage them up and she'll be in bandages for, you know, a number of weeks now. It's no small thing that happened to Bella and, you know, it could be anyone's dog. You know, we've seen injuries from going over under gates or walls or, you know, the, the next thing then is, you know, if they stray, they could get hit by a car. You know, they're just, they're just not safe if they're out at this time of year, in my opinion. So the most important thing really is just to keep them in and um, even pets who be used to being outdoors 
even if you have like a well secured area they can escape they can climb massive walls if their if their fear is bad enough so we would just really say to keep them in just it's just for a few nights they'll be fine make sure they're microchipped in case they do get out or even an id tag so they can be reunited with you safely with with animals that have been acquired during lockdown um they're not used to people coming to the house so trick-or-treaters is, is going to be pretty overwhelming for them as well so just to really try and desensitize them as well you know you know have somebody knock at the door a few times a day and so they can get used to it or you know some people might even say to play firework noises at a low volume on your phone you know and give them a few treats that kind of thing you can try distracting them with treat toys or puzzle toys things like that and you can consider consider anti-anxiety medication if your vet feels like that's appropriate um, and it's a conversation they'll be very happy to have with you you know we really want to help around this time of year and I'm still joined here by Assistant Chief Fire Officer Greg O'Dwyer. And Greg, tell us about fireworks and I suppose the advice in relation to fireworks. I'm guessing it's stay away, that they're dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. Fireworks are extremely dangerous. They can be uh, cause life-changing injuries. Um, thankfully, not so far this year. We haven't seen too much uh, in activities around fireworks, but we are expecting some over this weekend, obviously. Um, and we've seen it around the country this, this week. Um, fireworks are just dangerous by their very nature. They can go off uh, in people's pockets. We've seen that very uh, on numerous occasions, going off in young children's hands. Uh, you know, people have lost limbs uh, and have, you know, facial injuries and eye injuries and so on and they're extremely dangerous and we'd advise people again they are illegal they're illegal for a reason they're not um regularized so we'd advise people just to stay away from them altogether Brilliant. thank you very much greg and of course um as i were um, mclaughlin was speaking about there many children will be making sure their pets are safe inside while they will be out trick-or-treating outside last year it was advised that children should not go door to door collecting sweets but this year public health officials in effort have said children can go out trick-or-treating again and i spoke to children at the rediscovery center in ballymon who were doing some arts and crafts in, in and in holywell community center in swords who were at a halloween camp about their expectations for this halloween and whether they think their Hall of Milshawn will make up for last year. Tell me, Maggie, about Halloween. What's Halloween? What do you do on Halloween? I think I'll take a treating. What are you going to dress up as? Um, a dead cheerleader. And do you think Halloween is scary or fun? What do you think? Fun. It's fun. Why is it fun? Yeah, lots of sweets. I'm dressing up as a hypnotising clown. What is that? And where did you come up with that idea? Uh, I'm wearing a clown costume with um, goggles. It just came up in my mind. And what are you going to say at the doors when you're trick-or-treating in order to get lots of sweets? Trick-or-treat, smell like give me something nice to eat. If you don't, I don't care, I'll pull down your underwear. Last year we had to stay in, but my mum got these little trick-or-treat boxes and I had loads of sweets in it. So do you think you'll get extra, what do you think, sweets this year to make up yeah. for last year? What will it be like? I think that we're going to get more sweets this year. I'll be dressing up as the Green Reefer and Morgan's going to be dressing up as a dead prisoner, aren't you Morgan? It's a very simple costume. Will it be quite scary? Yeah, very scary. be very excited this year because you couldn't go trick-or-treating or do anything last year. I like going go to door to door and meeting other people and getting sweets off them. What are you going to dress up as? A blue Dino Fury Power Ranger. I'm going to be dressing up as a Halloween princess. What does that look like, a Halloween princess? So a princess in a black dress that is a bit scary, like might have bats on her forehead and stuff. What's the difference between this Halloween and last Halloween? Well, last Halloween we did collecting treats in our house. And what are you going to be doing this Sunday? Well, we, well, we're going to go out with our friends and trick or treat. Yeah, it will be so fun. Oh, I hope it is fun for them. Children there at the Rediscovery Centre in Ballymun in Dublin and Holywell Community Centre in Swords. They were speaking to our reporter, Ashling Maloney. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.